Dogecoin was started in 2013 as a joke. Jackson Palmer forked Bitcoin and created his cryptocurrency as a play off of the Doge meme. The currency became popular as a means of Reddit users tipping each other. If I made a comment on Reddit that you liked, you might send me some Dogecoin. This use case allowed people to share the idea of Dogecoin virally, and Dogecoin became valuable, even though the currency did not have any technical properties that made it significantly better than Bitcoin. As Dogecoin became popular, an experienced internet scam artist took notice and started a Dogecoin exchange called Moolah. Moolah was used to steal money from its customers and investors, and the CEO was arrested. Jackson Palmer was not involved in this scheme, but it soured his feelings about Dogecoin and the entire Bitcoin space. His coin, which had been created as a joke, had been hijacked and repurposed as a weapon to steal money. Jackson left the Dogecoin community in 2015 to focus on other things. But as Bitcoin entered the mainstream conversation, Jackson has been pulled back into the world of cryptocurrency. Jackson's YouTube channel has over 20,000 subscribers who tune in to learn about consensus protocols, new tokens, and cryptocurrency news. In today's episode, Jackson and I discuss his experiences with Dogecoin and how that compares with the scams around low-quality ICOs that are pulling in retail investors today. We also discuss more positive things, such as proof-of-stake and newer consensus protocols. If you're looking for an internship, apply to the Software Engineering Daily internship at softwaredaily.com jobs. And if you're looking to recruit engineers, you can post jobs for your company there as well. It's completely free to post jobs and to apply, and we're hoping to find interns to contribute to the Software Daily open source project. If you want to see what we're building, you can go to softwaredaily.com or check out our apps in the iOS or Android app store. They have all of our episodes with recommendations and related links and much more material. Also, meetups for Software Engineering Daily are being planned. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup if you want to register for an upcoming meetup. In March, I'll be visiting Datadog in New York and HubSpot in Boston. And in April, I'll be at Telesign in LA. I hope to see you there. Jackson Palmer, you are the founder of Dogecoin. You're a product manager in the Bay Area. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. You started Dogecoin four years ago, and it took off despite being started as a joke. Why did people buy Dogecoin? Yeah, it's funny. Like A lot of people ask me you know, in the early days, why do I think that it took off and had that virality that it did? And I think an often overlooked um, part of the equation was that people weren't actually buying it. Um, I think the early on, there was it was very easy to mine because uh, it was using S-Script algorithm, which at that point in time was still easily mineable on home GPUs. So anybody with a gaming rig could, could kind of point their computer at it and mine some. And in addition to that, the most usage was happening on Reddit, actually, where a tip bot had been built um, by a community member called Doge Tipbot. And through a simple comment, you know, Doge Tipbot tip this person 100 Dogecoin, you could send anybody on the platform on Reddit some Dogecoin, whether it was because of something they posted or a comment they made, without that user requiring a wallet that they had themselves. And so... 
there was just this inbuilt virality there of kind of like pay it forward, pay it forward happening on Reddit. And I, I think that's really what made it as, success, as successful as it was and not necessarily people going and buying it with their own money. That was actually novel technology at the time. It was, and I think it still is. I think there was a few years there where tip bots were extremely popular, and they, they seem to have kind of tapered off a little bit. There was even some startups in the space that tried to do tipping and have since kind of, I think they've kind of faded away mostly because of transaction fees on these networks getting too high for the stuff to work properly. But yeah, it was novel for 2013. What were the other non-Bitcoin cryptocurrencies in 2013? Yeah, so the, actually what kind of inspired the creation of Dogecoin was my interest in Litecoin and then subsequently Feathercoin. Feathercoin was a derivative of Litecoin itself, um, but it had like it was based in the UK and it was very community driven and local community driven, which I liked. And they had quite a passionate community of people involved. And so, you know, when Dogecoin kind of extended beyond the joke, that's kind of where I was drawing any inspiration from. People who start learning about cryptocurrencies, especially today, they often talk about going down the rabbit hole, which is a term that describes getting so infatuated with the technology that you stop doing anything except reading about cryptocurrencies and consuming information about it. How intrigued were you by it in 2013? Did you go down the rabbit hole or was this just a part-time fascination? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I initially didn't go down the rabbit hole because I I was skeptical of all this stuff. You know, Dogecoin, when I tweeted, you know, I'm going to invest in Dogecoin, it's the next big thing. That was a joke and it was it was very obviously a jab at the kind of flurry of alternatives to Bitcoin that were, were hitting the market. And so I didn't want to go down the rabbit hole because I, I had seen people do that. And the interesting thing about that that analogy of going down the rabbit hole is I think a lot of the kind of addiction, if you will, is driven by speculative trading and, and the price rather than an actual infatuation with the technology. And so I, I didn't want to you know, become a crazed kind of day trader overnight. And so I tried to avoid it. But as I got more and more involved in Dogecoin early on and, and, and eventually took on core development for it, I obviously needed to kind of go down that rabbit hole from a technology standpoint and understand how Bitcoin and its source code works. In 2015, you left the Dogecoin community. And this was when there were scams and thefts associated with the currency. And today, in 2018, there are many more scams and thefts involved in many more currencies. Did you realize then that what you were seeing with Dogecoin was just a small preview of what was to come in terms of all this scamming? No, I absolutely couldn't have predicted that it would kind of grow to the, to the level it, it has now. I, I saw Dogecoin as kind of like the pinnacle of, of mania back then. And as it, you know, over, you know, I left in 2015 after, you know, the, the whole industry had been hit by a lot of scams and consumer adoption was, was reaching a low and interest was kind of dwindling from, from venture funds. And I was like, I think this party's over. I really did not anticipate the resurgence that has kind of happened. I think there, there are definitely parallels, though. And so I think Dogecoin as a historical kind of case study is, is very important and useful as kind of a mirror to shine back on what's happening right now. That historical importance, one way to describe that is, as far as I can tell, it seems like Dogecoin was the first coin to get hijacked, where someone from outside of the core team 
took advantage of the currency and the currency's community. Correct. Okay, so you agree. Good. So this has happened more recently with pumping and dumping of all kinds of currencies. So you could start a currency and not have a conspiracy around it, and maybe a pump and dump group just takes it on and pump and dumps it for you, and you don't even have to be explicitly complicit. Like, it looks like this might have happened with XRP, for example. Is there a way to prevent that? If you start a currency, is there a way to prevent somebody from hijacking your currency and pumping and dumping it? Yeah, not really. I think I think it's the virtue of, of A, it being open source and B, it having a, being a currency or, or trying to be a currency. I think that the interesting thing with Bitcoin and all of its derivatives are that they're really the, the first open source projects which have financial incentives built in, right? Which I think for for an engineer is, is a very interesting kind of problem because if you look at you know previously successful open source protocols um, such as BitTorrent, Tor, or even something like the Linux Foundation and, and Linux Kernel, none of these open source projects had a financial element baked in. And so the incentives were ultimately just kind of let's build good software and if people like it, then it'll become popular. With cryptocurrency, there is like an inherent you know, value obviously associated with with that code, and because it is open, there's not there's nothing stopping anybody coming in and co-opting the community around that. And obviously, it's way easier to co-opt a community when you don't have to even fork it and write better code. You can simply pay that community or, or hype that community up around you know speculative price increases. So, in this community, there are these people who. They start a project, and it's like, we're going to decentralize X, and it's going to be beautiful, and the internet is the way that governance should happen, and we mm-hmm. shouldn't have any like traditional governments and, and whatnot, and they do an ICO, and they make a ton of money, and I mean, when I've talked to some of these people, there seems to be a conflict where th- I think they know deep down that the reason people are buying their ICO is not because of the fundamental value, the fundamental mm-hmm. promise of their decentralized utopia. It's more <laughs> the speculative nature of it. And yeah. do any of these people that you've talked to that have done these ICOs, do they feel morally conflicted or do they even have trouble processing it morally? Like Because they find themselves in this position where they're tremendously rich and their project has not really gone anywhere or been used for anything. And so... They and then they look at inside themselves and they're like, "Hmm, now I don't feel so motivated to decentralize the world. I wonder why that is." Yeah, I, I think these people exist in, in in almost a state of blissful ignorance. I think it takes a certain type of person and personality to kind of be able to to kind of maintain that facade. Um, you know, you look at a lot of these projects. You know, things that are like we're putting you know the dental industry on the blockchain, or a lot of these things that are doing enterprise plays, you know, with these app tokens. And, you know, why are thousands of consumers all across the world buying these things? Like, obviously not to actually use the platform if it ever is built. But 
mostly so they can flip the thing for, you know, some speculative profit in the future. The, the funny thing is, if you talk to any of the people involved in this project, and I do, you know, talk to them all the time, I think they, whether it's, it's simply to kind of maintain their legal position or whatever, I think they're, they're very proficient in, in maintaining that facade and saying, oh, no, no, the, the people are actually going to use this thing. It's very strange. Um, and, I, and I think it is a conflict of interest because the developers who find themselves in this position, well, that's if they even are developers. When they find themselves in this position of having a whole lot of money, they tend to focus on, on maintaining that wealth rather than actually switching into to developing the software. I think what's even worse is we've seen a pattern of teams doing this whole thing with the ICO, but then only after raising that money, then going and hiring developers, which I think is you know obviously the wrong way to approach this kind of stuff. <laughs> Yes, indeed. And there are so many opportunities for people with notoriety to help with the pump, like you see with John McAfee or Paris Hilton. Have you been tempted at all? Because I'm sure you have the opportunity to do that. If you wanted to, you could do it. But it seems like you have resisted that temptation thus far. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've definitely tried to resist that. And, you know, I kind of believe in, in maintaining your own integrity as a, as a person, because when all this is said and done, you know, you're still going to have to have your reputation to bank on, right? So I've obviously been solicited by a lot of these, these ICOs. They send me an email. They say, hey, we'll pay you all these tokens if you'll do a video or if you'll tweet about us or if you'll, you know, and I just cut them off right there and, and don't want to be involved because, a, you know, I don't, I don't want to be seen as a promoter of, of what might be deemed an illegal security in the future. But also, I just don't see a lot of merit in most of the technology being kind of um, marketed or promoted right now. If there is any technology, you know, a lot of this stuff is very shallow. You go to their, their website and their white paper is being, you know, written by somebody who's obviously a non-academic, obviously somebody who's maybe, you know, done some online marketing in the past. And there's just not a lot of substance. I think it's, it's very rare. And so I keep out of that and I try to, you know, just remain objective and, and call things out based on their, their actual merit um, if I see it, which is rare, rather than ever considering taking, you know, promotional money. Yeah. yeah you know, or the white paper is just completely plagiarized. So when you left in 2015, when you left the Dogecoin community, that was around the time Ethereum was coming out. Mm -hmm. Did you pay close attention to Ethereum at the time or had you relegated cryptocurrencies entirely to some small margin of your attention? Yeah, I've been during 2014 going to a lot of events and being around people like Vitalik a lot. And to be frank, I thought it was vaporware. I didn't think that this thing would actually mm. kind of ship. And this was prior to them doing the... the that makes two of us. Yeah, well, this was, this was prior to them doing the crowd sale, right? And I think... I had a bunch of, of friends here in San Francisco who, you know, we were sitting around. They're like, oh, we're, in, we're, we're putting some money, a Bitcoin into the Ethereum token sale or crowd sale. And I was like, oh, that's never going to launch. What I didn't anticipate was that they would take the bulk of that crowd sale and just like spin up multiple engineering teams just to like throw at the wall and see what sticks, right? And, and that's eventually how Ethereum got launched is they, they placed a lot of bets with multiple engineering teams and they released the, the, the one working client or the best working client. And I have to give them credit for actually shipping something because I just didn't see it happening. And, you know, obviously it stings a little bit when I, when I see these friends that I was sitting around with now who are like multimillionaires because of that decision. But at the same time, I think what, what they did ship with Ethereum is very much a, a beta product, if that. And I think we're already starting to see some of 
the issues with the scaling, but just the fact that, you know, Ethereum's had to kind of fast follow with these much more complex protocols like Casper and Plasma, I think speaks to the complexity of the problem and, and how the initial build may not be sufficient for scaling to where it needs to be. You know, what I didn't realize about Ethereum, the biggest thing that I didn't realize about Ethereum is, you know, you look at the morally conflicted, technologically inept ICO pump and numbers that we just talked about. If you were to create the complete opposite of that type of person, that would be Vitalik. True. Vitalik is just this guy who's just brilliant, and he seems to have a very clear and kind moral compass, Mm -hmm. and his pace of work has never slowed down throughout any of this. And and it almost seems like he was prepared to rise to the occasion, which is just almost incredible. Like, I have no idea how that guy manages his life. He lives a crazy life, and it, but he, you know the, the project moves forward, and he seems like he's present, and he seems like he's calm all the time. It's just like, you could not imagine a better leader of this type of project. And that's when I compare that to other projects I've seen, it's just like, nothing even comes close to the leadership quality. That was probably hard to recognize at the time. Or I don't know, it sounds like you met him in 2014, so maybe you saw the, the light no, I think you know it was it was always obvious that that, that he has a spark that that others may not have, and I, I think that you know I, I'm glad that I kind of align with his kind of you know you mentioned he's kind. I think he does have a good moral compass, um, which is something that you know is is honestly hard to find in the crypto space. I think there's a lot of different incentives and. and People have agendas and he doesn't seem to, which is, is pretty good. I think the challenge is going to be kind of like shiny object syndrome with him and, and that team. And, and I think there's obviously a lot of good developers working on it. But I think what they need to make sure happens is that the core protocol itself is, it gets a lot of love before they move on to something else. And underneath all of that, you know, I'm a product manager. And so I I tend to come from these things as before I come up with a solution, let's talk about the user problem that's being solved. And I I think that's still a huge issue with Ethereum and that outside of ICOs and crypto kitties, which, you know, I would say is just another form of ICO in a way. It's obviously it's very linked to, to speculation. There isn't a lot of use happening of the Ethereum platform. Right. So, again, I, I really think the right direction for them would be to, to look at what's the actual user problem we're solving. Is it is it peer-to-peer commerce? Is it some novel use of smart contracts that solves a real-world problem, you know, and then go from there rather than inventing protocols which kind of branch off in, in a million different directions that are kind of self-serving and meta in a way than instead of, you know, focusing on a core issue, which, I, you know, I hope Vitalik does because I think Vitalik does seem to have, you know, a pretty strong moral compass. He does seem to stand for, for social justice and, and, and that kind of stuff. And so I would like to, to see him focus on things that actually contribute back to society instead of just making the people who've done ICOs richer and richer and richer. Have you seen anything that resembles a production quality deployment of a smart contract that people can make practical everyday use of? Like, not Counting CryptoKitties? No, no, I haven't. I honestly haven't. I think a lot of these things are solutions, either solutions in search of a problem, which is what often the protocols are, or uh, in the case of these businesses that are spinning up around smart contracts, they seem to be shoehorning the idea of decentralization into an existing market that, that might not need it. And so I think it's very important when somebody says, hey, we need to do Airbnb on, on the blockchain or Uber on the blockchain. 
I think it's always good to go and look at the the product like Uber or Airbnb and say, are they really having a problem that requires like immutable censorship resistant, you know, database technology essentially or execution of, of, of arbitrary code? And, and my opinion ten, tends to lean towards no there. I think that people have this, they're kind of bandwagoning right now with a lot of this stuff. And yeah, it's a kind of slippery slope. And I think we've, we're in kind of like peak mania right now with people saying it's blockchain for X. After you stepped away and unplugged from the blockchain community, what brought you back? So, you know, when I stepped away in, in 2015, through 2015 and 2016, I was still working on kind of decentralized technology and, and, and tech in general. Um, I released a few open source side projects and um, was focusing pretty heavily on how we decentralize um, social media, which I still think is an important thing, just in not in terms of, you know, full decentralization, but just a from a data sovereignty and, and, and owning your own identity kind of landscape, I, I think is still important. So I was doing that for a lot of 2015 and 2016 in my spare time and you know, even released this kind of prototype of, of a social network. And then I got really into this other open source project called Mastodon, which is a, a federated social network platform. In early 2017, obviously, I was still keeping my ears kind of to the ground with the space. But what actually triggered it is that when the Ethereum price kind of, you know, spiked overnight or over the space of a few weeks, I was in an Uber here in, in San Francisco, rideshare, and one of the, the drivers was talking about Ethereum. And I was like, the fact that it had kind of started weaving its way into like everyday conversations kind of pricked my ears up and I, I was I honestly got flashbacks to, to 2013 and 2014 when the whole Dogecoin craze was happening. I was like, oh, it's happening again. Um, but who knows what's at what scale. So that's what kind of brought me back in and, and you know I, I, I came back and I I didn't have any intention of, of starting any new project, but more just taking my experiences and helping share knowledge about those experiences and and come at this stuff from a, a viewpoint of hey, like this, you know, we've, we've seen this kind of stuff before. Here's how you can kind of protect yourself and here's what you should be focusing on. So, yeah, I started doing my YouTube channel, which is really focused on educational materials and, and deep dives into the technology because I, I don't think there's enough people doing that. I think most of the media outlets and most of the, the YouTube channels you'll watch will be focusing on, you know, what coin's going to pump in the next week. Indeed. And I have found your YouTube material pretty helpful what piece of advice do you find yourself giving most frequently to people who want to invest in this space? Yeah, I think honestly, the biggest investment you can make is in yourself in terms of getting into this space. And what I mean by that is rather than investing money, I think the best investment you can make is to go and educate yourself about how this stuff works and how, you know, potential applications of it, because the people that are really going to succeed in the long term, right? I think bubbles come and go, right? And, and, and I have no qualms in saying we're in a bubble right now. I think the people that are successful are the people that build legitimate businesses and products on top of underlying novel technologies, right? And so the people that are going to still be standing in the next five to 10 years are the people who have done the research and done their homework over the next, you know, 12 to 18 months, and then started working on businesses and products that that actually solve a real world user problem 
with the technology that the blockchain and decentralization offers rather than the people that just, you know, pour a whole bunch of money into it. Sure, those people might make money. And I I should preface that this, this isn't financial advice, obviously, contact an actual financial advisor. But I just think, you know, the long play in this space is understanding the technology so that if you're an engineer in, you know, in 12 months, when you're working on your next product, you might think, hmm, there's actually a way that this new technology can help us get to market faster or in a, in a unique way. And rather than taking it from the, if I'm just going to buy it up right now, I'll be rich. Reason being that I tend to think of these tokens and these, these cryptocurrencies as companies. And just like in the, the early internet days, those companies are leapfrogged by people who take the underlying you know, concept, be it the internet back then, and kind of do them one better. And so, you know, I have no doubt that, you know, the cryptocurrencies like, like Bitcoin and Ethereum and these things are, are just the early players, right? They're going to be like the, the MySpaces and the Friendsters of cryptocurrency. And there's, there's, because it's all open source and because it, there's nothing that makes this technology different from other technology, regardless of, of how hard it is to understand. Like, I think that's important for engineers to understand. This is not magical voodoo magic. This is just technology. And because of that, somebody's going to come out and release the, the Facebook and the Snapchat of the crypto space and essentially uh, leapfrog um, Bitcoin, which would you know be the outdated technology. I totally agree with everything you said. And just to start with, the aspect of this just being yet another technology in computer science, if you study computer science, you study software engineering outside of the university, regardless, you learn about back end. You learn about front end, you learn about databases, you learn about restful systems and what's intimidating about Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies is that it's this whole other stack and it's you go over there and you're like, "Oh my god, it's like almost none of my I mean, certain computer science fundamentals certainly translate, but it's you're very much in a blue ocean and you're without a boat and you really have to like assemble your boat. And that takes some intellectual effort. I'm still having trouble with it. There's still so much that I really have trouble grasping. And I know that it's, and I basically do this full time. I just get to interview people and study this stuff as much as I want. And it's still really hard for me. And so I think I completely agree that investing in the knowledge is the right way to go about it. And I would also add that that's hard to do, but it's also worth doing. And it's going to be valuable even over a five to 10 year time horizon because it's a collection of fundamental breakthroughs why don't you put a finer point on that yeah what what is the fundamental breakthrough why do because there are these people who are just like oh it's a fad it's a bubble like even very smart engineers like i was talking to to somebody at kubecon somebody who's like a kubernetes core contributor and he's just like oh it's just a fad i'm like no 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 no. so like this is like more important technology and they just don't get it what would you say to those people yeah, I think it's not a matter of not getting it. I think what the what's happening here is a good kind of similarity, I would say, is with machine learning and AI, right? Like, um, I think that if you look at blockchain, well, well, let's start with AI. If you look at AI and neural networks and, and all of this stuff that, that that's kind of also having, you know, kind of a gold rush right now in, in computer science, these are not new concepts. These are neural nets have been around for many, many years. The technology and underlying principles that make up technologies such as TensorFlow and, and other machine learning platforms are concepts that, you know, there's a lot of prior art. And all that, that solutions like TensorFlow and any of these other machine learning 
frameworks provide is a way of bundling that to get those concepts together in, in a simpler to use framework and you know providing some example use cases, right? If it's image classification or if it's you know um, NLP or something like that. Now, I think blockchain, you can draw a direct similarity too in that blockchain isn't you know, a completely new technology either. Blockchain is based on a lot of cryptographic fundamentals that have been around for 20, 30, if not 40 years. All that Bitcoin did was just like TensorFlow, it brought that stuff together in a framework. It brought, you know, multiple disparate concepts such as hashing, proof of work, you know, distributed consensus together in a way that it was represented and, and tangible, right? It provided a framework for how to use those those concepts together to achieve a use case, which was peer-to-peer cash, right? So I think people should attack it from that standpoint. And I think if you think about it that way, it becomes a lot less daunting as a thing because it's not just something that popped up on the scene yesterday and all of a sudden, you know, you're redundant as an engineer because you don't understand it. No, no, no. I think it's it's a skill that you can learn. And, you know, just like machine learning, it's learnable. But don't think that it's it's something that is, you know, impossible to, to ever understand. And to take your other point about the Uber driver, I have had several conversations with Uber drivers about their decentralization project or their Bitcoin investments. And I think this is the modern equivalent of the shoe shiner. You're not supposed to invest when your shoe shiner is talking about this was something that they used to say in the wake of the 1920s market crash. You don't invest when yeah. your shoe shiner is yeah. talking about a stock because that means that there's no secret information left. Like it's made it to the shoe shiners. Exactly. The market is fully valued or overvalued. And you captured this in an article that you wrote called My Joke Cryptocurrency Hit $2 Billion and Something is Very Wrong. This was something you wrote a few months ago. <laughs> I thought you captured the moment quite well in that article. And this was just before the recent precipitous drop that probably was not the bottom. But what were you trying to capture in that article? Yeah, I was trying to capture definitely this kind of hyperbole that exists around blockchain and the subsequent kind of speculation and and money coming in that, that has resulted from it. I think that Back in in 2013, even though there was a mania going on, I think a larger number of people in this space wanted to understand the underlying technology, and they they had a vision. They had a they were trying to solve particular use cases. And back then, it's also important to remember that you know things like Venmo and Apple Pay they just didn't exist, or they weren't as as accessible as they are now. And so, solving you know peer to peer payments was actually a really you know a ripe market ready for disruption back in 2013. I think over the years, the whole notion of blockchain has kind of gotten swept up in this in this marketing pitch almost. You know, people say blockchain, everybody's like, ooh, I don't understand it, but it's this this magical thing, right? Only geniuses get it. And as a result, I think we've just everybody's spending their time focusing on the markets rather than focusing on the actual underlying technology and whether it it solves a problem. Like I think Bitcoin had a really strong chance of solving the problem back then. I think now the switching cost is a lot higher for end users because they have solutions like Venmo and Apple Pay, which are extremely low friction. And, you know, why would I go and use something that's more expensive and slower, right? So I think the shift in focus over to these hyperbolic kind of statements about how blockchains like the creation of the internet in terms of its importance in technological advancement or, you know, it's going to change the way we do everything. I think 
These hyperbolic statements only serve to pump the market up further, which is going to detract from and and distract um, everybody from actually discovering real use cases of this stuff. And when that bubble ultimately bursts, my concern is that people will just say, oh, well, that thing was just, you know, there was no substance to that and, and they'll move on. And I think ultimately that could do damage to the industry, right? And so, again, what I'm trying to talk about is I think that developers need to spend more time developing and less time being day traders. Indeed. Well, let's talk about some of the projects that you've covered in your YouTube channel and the other things you're excited about. What are the projects that you're most excited about? What are the interesting technical breakthroughs that are at top of mind right now? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For me, the things that are most interesting are, again, the things that hark back to that that initial value prop of providing peer-to-peer cash network. I think we never really nailed that. And so I don't, I don't see why we're moving, you know, we're kind of like racing a thousand miles ahead of, of ourselves. And so technologies such as there's a protocol called the Spectre protocol as a subsequent implementation or um, plan for implementation of that called Phantom this is from a team out of Israel, and it basically takes the Bitcoin blockchain model but scales it using directed acyclic graphs to basically allow uh, parallel mining of blockchains, which is very cool. So I'm really interested in these technologies that, that take the existing model and evolve it to something where we could actually maybe see a version of Bitcoin that is you know fast and cheap to use and can run on people's phones. Another one that I think is, is important to look at is a recent proposal called Mimble Wimble. There's an implementation on GitHub called Grin. Again, a similar thing where it takes Bitcoin and it scales it using some pretty novel cryptographic work. Again, it's not new technology, but it, it's just taking prior art and basically you know bundling it together in, a, in an efficient way. So those are the projects I'm really interested in. I think that the things that are really down low at the infrastructure level and, and rethink things rather than, you know, it's blockchain for X, because I think those, as we saw with Uber, I think, you know, everybody remembers a couple of years ago, there was the on-demand economy where everybody was doing something, you know, Uber for whatever. I think that dries up pretty quickly. And I think we'll see the similar kind of behavior in, in, in the crypto space, especially if the underlying protocols can't scale. The first thing you mentioned, Spectre, with this parallel mining of blockchains, what is parallel? Can you describe that parallelism a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So when Bitcoin is being mined currently, a block is mined every 10 minutes, which basically means every 10 minutes, all the miners in the network, they grab a bunch of transactions, they bundle them up. And then the one that produces the most proof of work that has the highest hash rate and solves a mathematical problem, basically uh, the quickest gets the kind of privilege of writing to that block for 10 minutes. What that means is that there's there's just a huge bottleneck in Bitcoin in that this block, you know, which is limited currently to, to one megabyte in size, can only be written every 10 minutes and by only one, by one person. So, you know, Spectre and Phantom basically take that and um, say, instead of being this synchronous kind of, you know, just one block after the other chain, we could instead have a network that, that uses something called a directed acyclic graph, which actually has multiple branches and nodes that you basically have multiple miners committing blocks at the same time, and eventually they're consolidated back into, into history, and it all remains you know, immutable and cryptographically verified. So by doing that, you essentially remove that blockage, and instead of just you know, one one megabyte block being mined every 10 minutes, you could have three, or you could you know, decrease that time to, to one minute, and you could have 
you know, 10 blocks being written every one minute by multiple miners out there. So yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting technology. Okay. So is that like, you've got the mempool of the transactions that have not been confirmed and the different miners, they're assembling blocks from that mempool. And because of the way that that's done in Bitcoin, there's a lot of duplicated effort. There's a lot of waste, essentially wasted effort. And if you were to separate the mempool into disjoint sets of transactions, then you would not have that kind of wasted effort and you would have higher total throughput. Exactly. Yeah. It it basically distributes the kind of load, the network load in a way that doesn't compromise uh, consensus. But you have to admit that adds a degree of complexity. You know, that's the thing. You got to love Bitcoin's kind of elegance or simplicity there. But then again, maybe I'm just saying that because I'm biased towards seeing Bitcoin function. That's what's funny about this. And I think, you know, we had a a brief Mm -hmm. conversation at this Decentralized Fridays event that you have. And you were talking about your skepticism of proof of stake. And I I think you're, if I understood correctly, your skepticism stemmed from the fact that it's unproven? Or maybe you could talk about just like why you're skeptical of proof of stake, because I see this as like a slightly more complex, unproven consensus mechanism. Yeah, yeah. Also, the problem that that all of these consensus mechanisms or trust models are trying to solve is, is the notion that it has to be costly for somebody to lie, or it has to be costly for somebody to try and attack the network. And, and if so, you have the right incentive structure in place to, to minimize attacks, right? Um, and Bitcoin does this by essentially saying the person with the, the, the most hashing power in the network wins, and they get to mine a block every 10 minutes. And proof of work is a pretty battle-tested way of solving this. It's, it's very wasteful in that you have a lot of people competing and, and doing duplicative work for really only one outcome, right? Like only one person is rewarded and you know, it's very wasteful. But in these other systems, so proof of stake, proof of stake essentially tries to eliminate that. And you know, instead of having to put down your electricity, which costs money, i.e. making it expensive to attack the network, you have to, to bond or stake coins. Um, where you say, look, I already have a million of these coins that are in the network, and I'm going to essentially put down a security deposit for those. And if I lie, I lose them, right? So again, there's the incentive for the person to not lie. I think that the challenge with that, that well, there's a couple of challenges. The, the challenge with that is, is coming up with a cryptonomic system that can't be gamed. And like you said, with what I was just mentioning with Spectre, I think proof of stake to, to an even higher degree has to add a lot of complex complexity and kind of these rounds of voting and and that kind of stuff to basically make sure that that system where all your staking is the beauty of, of proof of work is that you're staking something the thing you're putting at stake or the thing that you're burning money on is is a real world resource i.e electricity and computing power when the thing that you're you're, you're putting at stake in in a proof of stake network is just you know digital money which doesn't have any tangible representation it actually doesn't cost you anything except if that money is worth something to you right and so there's all these like incentive structures you have to have to try and make that work and it also because you know that money is digital there's there's a problem in proof of stake called the nothing at stake problem where there's no incentive for you not to try and game the system. In Bitcoin, you have to be selective where you point your proof of work, right? Because if you point it in the wrong place or you try and mine a block maliciously, you lose everything, right? You have one shot every 10 minutes. 
in proof of stake, I can stake those coins, but then, you know, and this is getting a little technical, but I can try and mine multiple chains and forks because there's no incentive for me not to, right? Like I can, I can do that. It's because it's just digital money. So I think that's a huge problem that the whole network is going to solve. And then also you just have the, the same problem that exists in Bitcoin. You know, people complain about minor centralization, right? Like all the mining powers in China, because the electricity is cheap. Eventually you end up with similar problems in proof of stake where you have these whales who are sitting on a large sum of money. You know, you have the billionaires who, again, control the network. And so it doesn't really fix the problem of centralization. It could actually get a lot worse because rather than having to kind of geographically go and find cheap electricity, you could, if you have money anywhere in the world, you can become a lot like one of the largest validators in proof of stake. So some of these protocols try and solve that by adding, you know, algorithms which try and randomly select a staker, a validator from that pool. But the challenge there is randomness is is hard, um, as any software engineer will know. And you also guaranteeing that it can be hard as well. So there's, there's, there's been some attempts to kind of rein that in. And, you know, we've seen things like uh, something called uh, delegated proof of stake, which is, you know, how the BitShares and, and Steam and I think EOS will also function. But you know, these all introduce something called master nodes, which, you know, again, are kind of centralized validator sets. So for as wasteful as it is, I think proof of work is probably the most battle tested and proven and has the ability to be the most decentralized because you, you physically have to burn electricity to, to play. Do you agree with the hypothesis that proof of stake makes sense because the more of a currency you have, the more interest you have in it succeeding long term. Yeah, yeah. Like obviously that and that's the very basis of proof of stake, right? Like that's the the whole concept is like why would I try and tear down something that I'm invested in? Yeah, absolutely. I think how do you make sure that that person is punished if they do lie and how do you incentivize them against finding different attack vectors where it looks like they're still you know, they're not lying, but they actually are, right? Which is what the whole nothing at stake problem is, which, which basically says if you have enough money, like what's stopping you from going back and changing history in by forking off, you know, and, and creating multiple fake forks. And the way that systems, you know, Bitcoin derivatives that have implemented proof of stake have tried to do this is they implement something called checkpointing, where they have the hashes of kind of history. They basically take the whole chain at a certain block height and they hash the whole thing. And they hard code those hashed checkpoints into the source code so that even if somebody in proof of stake was to um, try and lie, they could only lie back to a certain point. So again, there's systems to try and circumvent and fix this nothing at stake problem. It's just that they all to date have, have introduced some level of centralization that centralizes this stuff more than Bitcoin inherently or at a theoretical level is. And let's discuss something totally different, which is Ripple and Stellar and their respective consensus protocols. Ripple is a PBFT consensus system. How does a PBFT system compare to Bitcoin? Yeah, so PBFT or Practical Byzantine Fault Tolerance is simply like if you have a group of, say, 10 people, how do you make sure that they're not all lying to one another? And it's a pretty simple round-robin process where you basically have to make sure that 66% of the people all agree, right, and, and form consensus. It's very basic, and, and, and PBFT has been around for, for many, many, many years, like longer than Bitcoin has. 
the PBFT actually works really well. And it, it's used actually in a lot of, you know, software um, platforms. Um, you have technologies such as uh, Raft and Paxos, which which do orchestration of, of virtual machines and servers and stuff like that. And I'm sure a lot of people that have worked on AWS and things have, have used these before as a way of maintaining quorum between, say, a bunch of Hadoop nodes or, or you know, servers. The problem with this model is that it, it really it only works in what, what's called a closed membership setting, which is where you have control of or you have a predefined set of, of participants in this equation, right? So you choose the 12 validators and there is some level of trust in that and say, yep, these these nodes are not malicious. We know they're not going to lie. And so in the case of Ripple, Ripple implements PBFT and and they have to approve the validators in the network, right? So they, they say, hey, you know, banking partner, can you spin up one of these servers and run it? And we just trust that you're not going to lie. It's, they're not 100% trusting that person because 66% of their trusted validators still do need to agree or the, or the network kind of fails. But, you know, there, there's a heavy degree of centralization there. Stellar is a little bit different and it implements something called federated Byzantine agreement, which essentially takes the same model. And it's important to note that, that Jed McCaleb, he founded Ripple, but then he also founded Stellar. But they, they brought in a, a research scientist, David Maziaris, I think his name is, who wrote the Stellar Consensus Protocol. It takes PBFT and it basically federates the membership model to a point where the network itself kind of decides who the validator set is. And there's quorum about that as well. So I, I'm actually a huge fan of Stellar. And I think that it's it's a very interesting compromise and solution to this problem. Although, once again, you have the complexity trade-off, but I completely agree with you that we still have not really seen applications built on these things. We haven't really seen peer-to-peer cash be widely used, so I'm all for the widespread experimentation. Well, yeah, the thing there is, like, I think that Stellar is is complex, but I think to the end user it is not. Um, I think that there's, there's a bunch of nodes running, but for, for an end user that's using a wallet... Just like Bitcoin, you know, you, you don't really see the miners, right? You don't see how that's all working. That's actually one of my other critiques of proof of stake is that proof of stake greatly, for it to be truly decentralized, it greatly complicates the user experience because no longer am I just logging into an app that looks like Venmo, but is actually sending around Bitcoin. I'm logging in and I have to, I'm going to be prompted as to whether I want to stake my coins and potentially become a validator, right? Which you know, I don't think anybody that's using Apple Pay or Venmo right now wants to think about bonding coins and that, right? So I think from an end user perspective, I think it's just going to be a lot more complicated for people to understand. And in the last several months, as you've seen all these new protocols and new coins come out, how do you decide which ones to actually spend your time analyzing? Yeah, that's a good question. I try and determine which technologies are net new versus taking existing code bases like Bitcoin and simply augmenting them. And that tends to help. You know, most of these technologies we just mentioned are all different code bases. And so that is kind of how I I judge it, because I think while incremental improvement on Bitcoin is is useful, I think more often than not, the coins that are Bitcoin forks are are really just cash grabs rather than, you know, people actually trying to, to move the space forward. So you know, that, that's kind of my, my, my way of looking at it. And also just keeping a very close eye on the research community around Bitcoin and looking for, for white papers, be it Mimblewimble or Spectre or Phantom. I think there's a lot of good work there happening. Again, it's all academic. It hasn't actually been released yet. 
But, you know, if you kind of want to nerd out on it, I think that's the stuff and that I kind of gravitate towards rather than, you know, whatever the, the latest ICO is that, that's being marketed to me on Instagram and Facebook and everywhere I go. As we wrap up, the thing that I think people are waiting to see if the other shoe is going to drop on is Tether, or it's I guess that's one of the things right now. But basically, Tether, this purported stablecoin that has not been able to prove that it has a dollar backing each unit of Tether cryptocurrency, which, or I shouldn't say cryptocurrency, Tether currency. It's not even really technically a cryptocurrency, right? It's just a currency. Well, Tether is a crypt. It does have a cryptographic protocol called Omni, which operates on top of Bitcoin. So it's a okay. crypto token. You know, you can think of Omni as similar to Ethereum, but built on top of Bitcoin. And so, yeah, it's kind of like an ERC-20 token in a way. Is there like a rational explanation for Tether's resistance to auditing? No, there's no rational explanation, right? I think like if you, if you come at this stuff from kind of like Occam's razor and where, you know, the, the simplest explanation is often the right one. I think when you're in that industry, in that financial industry, and you're not providing audits, it's pretty obvious that you're trying to hide something. And I think some of the, the statements that have come out around, you know, you know, them kind of breaking ties with, with Friedman, who was their, you know, their attorneys uh, who were doing the audit um, previously, the statement said that they, they, you know, things were going too slow and they were being too thorough with the audit. I think if you close ties with your, your auditor because they're being too thorough, then that obviously speaks volumes as to, you know, <laughs> where things are at. So I don't know, like I've commented a lot on Tether in the last couple months, but it hasn't gone and, you know, self-imploded yet. And maybe it never will, right, until the game is up. Like maybe Tether won't fail until the rest of the space sees a huge market correction. But, you know, I think there's a lot of red flags, but, you know, there's no hard evidence, which is the tricky bit. Yeah, it could be like the herbal life of cryptocurrencies. That's a really good analogy. Yeah, I think it, it's hard to get any actual hard evidence on them. Okay, Jackson, it's been great talking to you. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Really liked it. Wow. 